12 to 24. Final instructions. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come before your word this morning, um, we pray that you'd humble us, help us to recognize that you speak to us through your word, by your spirit. Please, Lord, speak into our hearts this morning, encourage us, challenge us, inform us, equip us, Lord, to lead our effective lives for you on the front line, on our front lines. Please be with us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what your family is like. Because families are all different, aren't they? Some of them are small, perhaps just a mum and one child. Other families are big, extended families. Aunties, uncles, second cousins, twice removed, etc., etc. Families are all different. But perhaps um, you don't really have much of a family. And it may be that you actually see the church family as your family. But families are funny things, aren't they? We like to project an image of a happy family where everyone gets on well and we're all having fun together, just like in the TV ads. And Facebook is full of happy family posts because we don't like to portray the tensions, the hurts, the misunderstandings, but we know that there are cracks in every family's lives. In my family, my uncle announced one day to my father that he didn't want any contact with him and wouldn't speak to him ever again. Now, my uncle had been the best man at my parents' wedding. Both families, we used to go away together in the summer and holiday. We spent every Christmas together. Then both brothers hit their 70s, and something from the past 
erupted into the present and they stopped talking. And my dad was devastated and it was never resolved even before he died, much to his sadness. And you may carry a hurt from a fractured relationship in your family because it can be very painful to be part of a family. So what about our church family? Well, like any other family, we have our ups and we have our downs. But what does the Bible teach about being part of a church family? And what's different about relationships within God's household? We're going to find out a bit more as we delve into this last uh, remaining passage in the book of Thess- Thess- Thessalonians. I can't say it. Um, and we've been looking at it the last couple of months. This is, this is the last section. And we're going to see how belonging to a church family is important because it can resource us to live effectively from Monday to Saturday as we are the scattered church on our front line. So I've got three headings for us this morning. Uh, first of all, relationships. It's all about relationships. Relationships towards leaders relationships towards one another, and relationships with God. So first of all, relationships towards... Oh, that's not very good, is it? Relationship towards leaders. The writer of this letter frequently uh, refers to his readers as brothers and sisters. Well, he could have uh, addressed them as members, or he could have said citizens, or he could have said friends. But no, he addresses them as brothers and sisters. And he does throughout the letter, you'll notice as you read through it, he calls them brothers and sisters because they belong to a family. And I wonder whether you sort of think of other people within the church as your brothers and sisters. Because if you're part of the church, then you're part of a family and other people are brothers, your brothers or your sisters. When I was in Pakistan, the Pakistani church, the Christians, are really good at this. They actually address each other like I was called Bahai Dave, which means brother Dave, or I'm with Behin Irene, you know, they call each other brother and sister, which was a good reminder all the time that you're part of a family. Now, the the way you respond to this idea of church being like a family probably depends a lot about on how um, you experience family life, particularly as a child or even now as an adult. It depends on the kind of relationships perhaps, perhaps you've had with your siblings and your parents. I had a friend whose parents didn't have a very strong relationship. Um, They hardly ever spent time together. And then my friend came and stayed with my family, and they were deeply impacted by the bond that my parents appeared to have. Because this friend had never imagined that a married couple could actually enjoy spending time with each other, and that they could actually speak to each other in kind ways. Not that my parents were perfect, far from it. Um, But he was used to seeing parents living separate lives. He was used to seeing the only words that were uttered were unkind words. So for him, that was a big revelation of what family life could be like. And it may be the same for us as we come into the church family. If you're new to church particularly, you may for the first time see that people really love each other. They care about each other. And we may be exposed to different attitudes and ways of behaving, good things that we can learn and imitate. But sadly, we may also be disappointed as we see at times brothers and sisters can hurt one another. But relationships in church matter. 
And the first kind of relationship that Paul highlights in it is relationship with leaders. Look in verse 12. He says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And as we read these instructions to the early church in Thessalonica, we don't actually know what their experience of their leaders had been. It may have been that their leaders had been very harsh and heavy-handed. It's possible also that the members of the church have been disrespectful towards their leaders. We don't know. But what's clear, Paul is saying um, that every it's God's will that in every church there are leaders, not one leader, not just a vicar, but lots of leaders within a church. And Paul has three important things to say about leaders in verse 12. First of all, Paul says, acknowledge those who work hard among you. So the church family is a place where we need to recognize and accept leadership. But what should these leaders be like? Well, they're not supposed to dominate and organize everything. One writer puts it like this. He says, leaders are not meant to monopolize ministries, but rather to multiply them. You see, leaders are not just people who are there to fill a position or carry a title. They're supposed to work hard. Ministry is hard work, whether we do it as a voluntary capacity or in a paid capacity. And I'm very aware that many people who are in leaders within our church have worked a full day at work, and then they're coming out in the evening for a meeting or for an event as well. Or maybe they even retired, but they've had an even busier life, doing 101 million things and then coming to do something as well. And I know that most people think vicars only work one day a week, but actually, you know, we're supposed to work hard. Ministry is hard work. It isn't just a position to boost our egos. Secondly, Paul describes leaders should be, sorry, people who care for you in the Lord. The leader's role, whatever the leader might be from a home group or youth group or whatever it is, their role is to care for their brothers and sisters. And of course, the greatest example of a leader that we have is in Jesus himself, a servant leader who took a towel and washed the feet of those he was leading. As far as Jesus is concerned, the chief characteristic of a leader is humility rather than authority. The emphasis is not on the person's rank, but their care of others. Thirdly, Paul says that leaders are those who admonish you. Now, to admonish means to warn against poor choices, attitudes, behavior, and its consequences. So how might we admonish one another? Well, it can be a gentle word or simply a question. Or in some cases, it might need that we, and I include myself in all of this, might need a stern word. Something which makes a brother, a sister, think and reconsider what they're doing. And of course, it must be done prayerfully and sensitively. And so we see in verse 13 that we are, we are to hold leaders within the church in the highest regard. And we all have leaders to look up to. I certainly do. But the combination of respect and love will enable everyone to live in peace with each other. And the next family relation that Paul unpacks for us is relationships towards one another. Look in verse 14. He says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays wrong back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So you can see how the focus has changed. We're not just talking about leaders now. We're talking about everybody. 
And Paul is urging this small, young church in uh, um, first century Greece to see that it isn't just the, the leader's responsibility to care for people. It's everyone's responsibility to do pastoral care to some degree. It's everyone's responsibility to welcome newcomers. We've all got a part to play. Because, a ch- because the church should be a place of welcome, regardless of somebody's gender, their ethnicity, their age, or their social or religious or cultural background. Everyone is welcome. And that task is one for all of us. And next we see that Paul picks out three groups in particular for special attention. First of all, uh, and, and, and actually, as he picks out each of these groups, he says they each of them needed a slightly different approach. First of all, he says, warn those who are idle and disruptive. So it seems like in the church in Thessalonica, there were some people who were a bit work shy. They may have spiritualized their reasons not to work. They may have said, well, what's the point of working if Jesus is coming back? There's no point having a job. And that kind of attitude is disruptive because it gives a negative model to follow. So Paul says that they needed a a stern word because it was important that they worked, that that if they were able to, they earned a living. Can you see what Paul is saying? We need to care for one, one another at different times in different ways. Secondly, Paul says, encourage the disheartened. And all of us, at times in our lives, can become disheartened, can't we? I don't know how you've come this morning. Maybe you feel disheartened this morning. But you know, I have um, um, a Muslim friend. We've got some friends from Oldham here this morning, which is really nice. And, uh, but one of the, I, I miss my, many people from my previous parish, but in particular, I miss my Muslim friends. And I have one who, who regularly phones me. In my first week of being here, he phoned me and said, uh, he's a Muslim. He's not a Christian, he's a Muslim. He said, how's it going, Dave? I hope you're you know, enjoying it because you did a really good job when you were here in Oldham. I think you're going to do a really good job in Preston. Isn't that amazing from a Muslim friend to do that? And another thing he said to me, he said to me, Dave, why do we wait until some people die before we start saying good things about them? He said, we should be telling them while they're alive, shouldn't we? I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. If someone's doing a good job, then we should tell them. We should encourage one another. Why wait until we're preparing a tribute for someone's funeral that they will never hear? Let's do it today. Let's encourage one another. Thirdly, Paul says, help the weak. Now, this reference may be those who are struggling with um, sexual temptation, but it also can apply to anyone who's struggling in their Christian life, whether we're struggling with loss, and we know that many among us are struggling with loss. It might be that we're struggling with physical illness or perhaps struggling with uh, mental health issues. Uh, We all struggle at some point in our lives. So Paul ends the sentence with a catch-all phrase, Be patient with everyone. We're all to be patient with each other. We're all on a journey, aren't we? And we're all learning. Finally, we see that Paul addresses our relationship with God in the church family. I don't know when you go away for a weekend or on holiday, whether you go go to another church or whether you think, oh no, I'll just have a Sunday off. I don't know. But if you go to another uh, a church. What do you expect when you walk inside? What do you expect a service to include? Well, here Paul gives us a kind of a checklist of the main headlines of any church service. First of all, he says, um, rejoice always. That's a big part of our lives as Christians. 
You know, we, as we did this morning, it was great to start, wasn't it? Start with praise and, and, and giving God thanks for who he is and for the gift of his son, Jesus. That's a good way to start our times together. Do you remember a song that hit the charts a few years ago called Don't Worry, Be Happy? Does anybody remember that song? Very annoying little melody. Once you got it in your head, it just wouldn't go away. Uh, it's a nice sentiment, isn't it? But actually, none of us has the capacity to be happy all the time. And it would be a mistake to think that this is what Paul is saying in this verse. We can't just switch on joy or happiness. And Paul says a similar thing elsewhere in the New Testament. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. We are called to rejoice in the Lord, in Jesus. Um, Our circumstances may not be ones that we particularly want to give thanks for, but wherever we are, we can thank God for Jesus, for what he's done in our lives, for the grace, for the love, the peace, the joy, the purpose that knowing Jesus gives us. That's what we're called to rejoice in, whatever our circumstances So this verse isn't an order to be happy, it's an invitation to worship. Secondly, he says, pray continually. We've been thinking a little bit, what does it mean to pray continually since our prayer, week of prayer at the beginning of the year? And prayer should be a big part of our lives together. Jeanette led us in our prayers this morning and um, praying for different issues, which if you listen carefully, she was picking up from stuff that's happening in the news, uh, big issues, and that's what our prayers should be like. But what about praying at work? I wonder whether you have another Christian colleague at work or whether places where you volunteer. Have you ever thought about meeting up with that Christian colleague and, colleague and praying, perhaps at lunchtime or after work? Why not do it? It's an amazing thing to do, to start praying for God to be at work in your workplace and just see what God does. But we also see that thankfulness should be um, a big part of our Christian lives. That, that discipline of giving thanks to God for um, our, our, our situations and our lives. Finally, we see that um, we need to listen carefully. The part of our corporate lives together is, is about listening to one another and listening to God. Look in verse 19. It says these interesting words. It says, Don't, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. Do not quench the Spirit. So that's suggesting that somehow we can stop the work of the Holy Spirit amongst us. It's interesting, isn't it? So we're told that if somebody wants to share something with us, that they believe that God is saying to us, we're told we should not um, treat... Um, that with contempt, but nor should we be um, totally accepting of what everything is said to us. We shouldn't be naive. So if someone says that they sense that God has a word for us, then we should listen carefully. We shouldn't reject it outright, nor accept it outright. We should weigh it up, consider what's been said. It needs to agree what is revealed within Scripture. And if it contradicts that, then it can't be from God. It needs to fall into line with the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and we're saved by grace alone. And if it contradicts that, it can't be from God because the Bible is our ultimate test for any word from God. And we need to look at the character of the speaker and see if their words are consistent with the way they live and what they say. And finally, does it actually build up the church? And whenever possible, a prophetic word needs to be checked with the church leadership before it's shared. 
but we need to be open to what the Holy Spirit says to us. And we need to check what people are saying. In our prayers, we thought about some of the funerals that have been happening recently. In our community, our parish has been touched by, um, by grief, hasn't it? Um, we have another funeral coming up for Michael Brooks, the young man who sadly, his body was found in the river just a, a week or so ago. And we're going to have the service here. That's going to be probably a big event. So please do pray for that. But I think one, I'm learning a tremendous amount through taking these funerals because they're much bigger than ones that I've done before. Um, and one of the things I've learned is not to, not to lose your sense of humor. And I think Thomas, Paul, if you don't mind me sharing that, taught us that, didn't he? I won't ever forget walking into the creme um, and um, to the music from Johnny Cash, Ring of Fire, and <laughs> which was Thomas's choice. And it all made us smile. And, uh, yeah. So it's in that spirit that I share this next slide. Um, it was sent to me this week. You probably can't read it, but it's, it's from a church in Africa and it says, St. John's United Methodist Church, live your life well so we don't have to lie at your funeral. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? That really is great. So what should be the motivation to, for us to lead our lives well? It's not just so that somebody says something nice about us in the funeral. Um, do you remember when we started this series, we read from chapter one, these words, remember, we remember before God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love. Three virtues that produce something which is visible and practical. Their faith in Jesus made a difference on their front line.